On today's episode, uh, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fire Walk with me. And uh, for today, my co-host is Erin of Paranormal Princess. And I'll hand the mic over her to introduce herself further. Well, hello. I'm sure I know some of the listeners here. I'm avid Twin Peaks fan. I don't even think fan describes it at this point. Because we all know Twin Peaks is kind of like life at this point. So <laughs> I'm excited to talk about Laura Palmer. Since we're focusing on primarily the seven days of Laura Palmer... I feel like it's probably best to start off when we get around the half hour plus mark where we see the one year later and we hear the theme and then we see Cheryl Lee walking down the street, not just a flashback, but just as a living, breathing person. I can't be the only one that felt this jarring feeling when you see that shot for the first time. Especially after all of the weirdness of like the first 45 minutes or so of the movie. And then it's like Laura Palmer before, you know, she's real. Because at that point, like, all we had was flashbacks. I think of uh, during my 2020 rewatch, I actually read The Secret Diary with Shirley's audiobook playing in the background the whole day, lean into watching it. And that scene just feels so much more crushing, like, when you go into it like that, because... You know, you think of Cheryl Lee, where she basically memorized all of the secret diary and every like horrifying thing that Laura went through from 12 years old onward. And you just feel in like just like the way that she presents herself, the way she walks, like their eye contact. And it it really sets this very upsetting tone without even saying anything. I feel like David Lynch is very good at like the tone of things and kind of like we discussed before the episode, like there's a part of the character in every actor and everything Shirley does, just like you said, from her her facial expressions and her eye contact, everything feels very planned, but unplanned, if that makes sense. (laughs) Oh, no, I think it makes perfect sense. But, you know, after we see her walk down the street, we're introduced to Donna. And of course, I know, you know, this put aside anyone with the Maura Kelly versus Laura Flynn Boyle type of discussions. My perception on Maura Kelly as Donna is that, um, and I'm sure Lynch didn't intend on this, but the way I view it is that this is like the first indicator that we're seeing the world the way Laura sees it. Because the way I look at Firewalk Me is that for most of her arc, she's repressing one of the most horrifying things that could ever happen to her. And then the rest of her arc is emotionally dealing with it like after she's confronted with this horrifying truth and i look at maura kelly as donna in the way that laura looks her as this like infallible uh and pure character and then that, that kind of sets a tone that she sees the world differently because it's not to undermine her intelligence because she is very clearly intelligent and independent but there is that sense that when you're hiding from a horrifying truth of that nature they're just this inherent skewed view of the world. And I, I view that Maura Kelly's Donna is kind of what sets the precedent for that for me. I feel very similar way that you do. I've, like, I've always kind of thought of it like, obviously, it's just a difference in actresses. But I see like Maura Kelly is more like the innocent Donna. And then Lara Flynn Boyle's 
the more, I don't say traumatized, but kind of traumatized. I mean, you know, you lose your best friend and you go through all that and you someone else. So I guess in my mind, that's why I've always made the separation without the whole, which one is better. That's one where I just kind of accepted it just because they both, I actually, honestly, I think they both do a pretty good job independently of how they function in respectively in Firewalking in the original series. But we do see Laura and Donna, they just go to school. But the uh, next point that I had was that when she sees James near the end of the school day, she talks about how she's gone like a turkey in the corn. I just kind of accepted that this just means that she feels irreversibly damaged. But uh, I do think of, obviously with season three in mind, of Hawk's map is that he talks about the blackened corn like at the bottom of the map. And the thing is that you look at it and you see like the turkey that's uh, approaching it. And the corn is actually, not only is it being blackened, but it's bending away. And you see the last remnants of the tip that are still yet to be blackened. And I kind of wonder if that, at least based on my interpretation, if that means that she just feels that she's this, like, deeply rooted evil of sorts, that she can never be redeemed. Obviously, there's more on this uh, later on, but it is interesting to think of that correlation with Hawk's map and with what she's saying for me. I actually never put that that part together because that part for me. So I have like set crying points throughout the movie that just like no matter what, they just make me cry. And that's that's one of those scenes that like I get. I don't know if you've ever seen Firewalk with me in theaters, but people always laugh when she says that. And I just like I get upset and my husband's always like, calm down. But I'm like, that's not funny. I was at the event in Fayetteville. I don't think I've sent anyone or you, but I do remember people laughing at the gobble, gobble, gobble. And that's actually a scene that actually I find more upsetting each time I watch yeah. it. I, I And that's actually one of the scenes where I'm not quite moved to tears, but it is more of this emotional tug each time I watch it. Because I, I guess it's probably worth mentioning is that Firewalk is not really a movie I can watch every night. And it's yeah. actually, it's not even really an enjoyable movie to watch in any way either. So it's really just more of a... I'll watch a few times out of the year, but I, it is a movie I'm always thinking about just because it is just one of those movies that I was just deeply moved by. Yeah, I, and not to get like super heavy, like right off the bat, but like part of the reason that movie, like, I guess is so personal to me, or personal, I can't talk, is like basically I lived everything that Laura Palmer lived, like at the same age, everything. And so when she says like, you know, I, I'm gone, long gone, like a turkey in the corn. It's like, I get that, like, on a, an emotional level. And so when I hear people, like, laugh, it, I don't know, that, like, it just bothers me because, like, she's saying she's gone, like, truly gone. And, like, people that have been in that situation feel that to their core. I think of, like, the way she's talking with James and... I, and this is coming back to my 2020 rewatch is that when I read The Secret Diary and then watched Fire Walk Me a short span, it actually retroactively made James a much stronger character because, you know, there's all these other men in her life that are like using her or exploiting her. But he's like the one guy, even if he's not the brightest crayon in the box, but you can tell that he cares <laughs> like through and through about her. And, he does. Uh, and there, there's just some about like the way that you see that in the secret diary where she even talks about how by her own admission that James does actually care and that like this is going to be like the hardest part for her. And yeah, it's a, it just kind of says that there's only one person and even, and put, even put aside to like, you know, if I think James is smart or not smart, it needs more than one person to help someone like Laura because, you know, we're talking about someone who's like dealing with a stress that's hidden in plain sight and it can't just be one person that can help with that. Well, and he's, he's a kid too. 
I mean, he's not an adult that can step in and help. He's immature, just like every other 17 year old. And so it's like, you can't really expect him to like, I realistically save the day. Oh, yeah. Now that we're getting to the after school part, my next point was the unhealthy relationship with Laura and Bobby, where I feel like I look at this scene and I think of how I felt about it before The Secret Diary and after The Secret Diary, because the first time I watched it, I didn't read it at all. And I thought, oh, well, this is just like a really uncomfortable and pretty contentious relationship. But when you think of The Secret Diary, of course, Laura's on, on drugs because she has to fend off this horrifying truth that she's running from. But it is also uh, like with Bobby that there is like a inherently dysfunctional dynamic of him like getting drugs for her. And so when there's the whole thing of, of how she's smiling at him, saying, like, come on, come on. And then he does that. it, he does it almost on cue. And uh, it's almost like, I mean, maybe it sounds a little crazy to say that she has like this, almost like a subtle power in, in some way, but it's like, she just knows that it's like, a, it's going to be like right down the millisecond that it, this is going to work out. Oh, she, I absolutely, she does. Cause she has that when you're in the situation that she's in and the amount of men especially after you read the secret diary and you hear you know when she went to the lake and she like from her own mouth and not just from donna's story but she knows men through and through and she knows exactly how to get what she wants from them so she does have that power especially over bobby like i love bobby like he starts off as just a very unlikable guy honestly especially if you haven't read the secret diary he just sounds kind of like a douchebag all the time but his character growth one of my favorite parts but she is not nice to him really and he's like a lot softer in the secret diary than he lets on in the show in the movie yeah i think of even the pilot where the whole i loved her and she loved me where it's uh he's so over the top about where he has to convince himself about it before he can convince others and again that's another scene that works a lot better when you watch stuff in chronological order of like oh wait yeah bobby would be horribly insecure about this and we put on as much of an image as he can. The next scene, is, I, uh, I was thinking of the scene when Donna and Laura are at Donna's house after school. And I actually read this from John Thorne well, in his days of Wrapped in Plastic, is that every angle is overhead. Because during that scene, which by the way, this scene is what made me realize that Cheryl Lee was going to have this not just a good performance, but like something that would viscerally move me is that when she starts talking about how in space she'd be falling faster and faster and bursting into flames. You wouldn't feel anything. Yeah, no, that's, I have posted that Facebook quote every time I'm depressed throughout my teenage years. (laughs) But she talks about how the angels wouldn't arrive because they've all gone away. Well, the thing I find interesting is that the idea of it being overhead with the camera is that it's almost like a clue that the angels are actually watching over her like still at this time she just and the audience doesn't realize it yet and there's even just like at the near the end that scene when uh donna she looks at laura and you hear the tiniest bit of the voice of love and that's a scene that that moves me that aspect certainly moves me more and more each time i go back to watch it oh yeah that's Another crying point, and I've put that, I've watched that scene in particular. Again, it's when I've had like bad days and like dealing with stuff in my past. That's one scene that I like, it's silly, but like I'll put on replay because it's sort of like, you know, I'm not alone, even though Laura is like a fictional character, but that's such incredible dialogue there. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Um, but she she goes home after it, and then she kind of is like back to her quote-unquote normal self. But uh, another scene that made me realize how incredible she was an actress is that she's looking at the ter- torn-out pages, 
and just how mortified she is, promptly goes over to Harold. And the thing that I, I find a little more interesting on each rewatch is that Harold, he is absolutely convinced that Bob is not real and that Laura is under the impression that he is this real thing that crawls into her, her room uh, at set nights. And actually, this is one I've only brought up a few times, but the first time I watch it, when she says Bob has been having his way with me since I was 12. I don't know if you watched Gerald's game, but uh, there's a there's a scene where Carla Gugino, she's reflecting on after her 12th birthday, where she has a pretty inappropriate encounter with her father. And the thing is that she talks about how she theorizes that that after her 12th birthday, she had her period and it set him off. And uh, this is something I think because I know a lot of people feel very strongly about the there is no Bob, it's just Leland or Bob is possessed by Leland. But that was a, that was a certain factor that uh, I thought of that probably adds a certain degree of credibility that it is just Leland because, you know, especially since Ray Wise, he also views it in the same sentiment as well. I've always thought there was, especially like after season three of Twin Peaks, like I think Bob is real, but I think it's more like inside of Leland. So she's seeing Bob's true face. And like, I know there's all the theories that like she uses Bob so she doesn't have to put together that it is her father. But I think on some level, she sees the true face because like when she's over with Harold and she has that moment where she says fire walk with me and you get the glimpse of like the dead, like dead looking Laura, like I guess demonic for lack of a better word. It, it's like, it's kind of inside of her now too. Oh yeah. My thing is that um, in the case of where I stand on the whole Bob aspect is that in my opinion, there, it's kind of a, it sounds a bit of a cop out, but I believe it's a mix of the two where like there is this entity that is relatively dormant, but it does have this trickle down effect on in the case of Leland. Cause I, I view it almost like in the case of Leland, it's like a, the abuse becomes the abuser. Because uh, when I think of his scene, his death scene in season two, when you see him talk about the dream that he has about how Bob came in and opened him up, it's actually not that far off from the secret diary where Laura, she talks about Bob in a dream first and foremost. So, so I do think that if we're in short, it's about how Leland was the abuse that becomes the abuser. And then Laura, she's very susceptible to it, but because she takes the ring, that she does break the cycle. Yeah, I guess it's probably best. I know I'm kind of fast forwarding the end on this uh, for a moment, but I guess yeah, I just want to make sure that this is where I stand in terms of, you know, how I view these characters from this point on. And I think for me too, just because like, since I am the paranormal princess and I do the paranormal stuff, but like I tend to like lean more towards paranormal things sometimes, like if I watch movies or anything. So, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, it could just be completely not paranormal that it's literally just her dad abusing her. But I always lean more towards the, the paranormal aspect of it. And maybe part of me is just like, I don't want to believe it was Leland <laughs> and like purely just Leland. That could just be a bias and like a problem internally. Oh, no, there's at least a couple scenes that I have lined up as we go through this, because there's scenes where it just feels it's too hard one way or another. But there are some scenes that are very hard to get through, like regardless of where you stand. The uh, next one that I have is that I think of the fan scene. It shows like her, she's wearing like the red button down. It took me until a couple weeks ago, even before I did my last rewatch of it, is that I think that there's some indicators that we're seeing stuff in out of order. It's sort of like how Laura, she, she kind of goes through life in a certain way and things just don't feel real. And she's just kind of like experiencing things in a certain manner because she wears that red button down like during the fan scene from Missing Pieces and also presumably before or after she sees James later on in the movie. 
And then also, she's wearing the green sweater after the dinner table scene. That's something that she wears the day when her and Leland see the one-armed man. Maybe I'm looking too far into it, but um, <laughs> there are just somewhere certain things that she's wearing and scenes that, not that they don't necessarily make sense, but they're just something that I feel like that's worth touching upon. I guess I didn't notice the clothes as much. I get so emotionally involved in the movie that sometimes, like, the smaller details, like, that slip by. But I think you're right. I mean, as we've kind of learned a lot with Twin Peaks, the timelines and everything is just kind of, like, I'm going to say time doesn't exist because that's dramatic. But there is, like, a sense of reality that comes and goes. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. I'm just trying to think of what else. Uh... The dinner table scene, though. is that? Do you have that on there? That I definitely have. With this scene... Um, the, of all the things that stand out about this scene is that when Leland goes over to Laura and sees the necklace, I mean, put aside anything about how saying, did you get this from your lover? How just inappropriate that is. But the thing that has always stood out to me is that Leland looks dead in her eyes and says, Bobby didn't give you this. And then Sarah says, how do you know Bobby didn't give you this? And the thing is that I could only imagine what's like for Bobby, the handful of moments that he sees Leland and Sarah, regardless of like, again, the whole, whether it's Bob or Leland, that there is a weird possessive trait that has to shine through where even someone like Bobby, who's maybe not be that smart, that there has to be some weird dynamic that's un inherently uncomfortable. I would think so. But when you think about how they always say, like, things aren't so rosy behind closed doors, and Leland's pretty good at putting on a face, and like, at all times, so he might have given off the impression to Bobby that, you know, everything's hunky-dory, because Donna was never worried about him. Actually, that's really not a bad point at all. Um, I guess there's just something that I've always honed in on about how Leland how he just knows that Bobby wouldn't give her that, or he can make that deduction. It's like, it's not Bobby, but it's just like someone else. And the fact that Sarah, is, she just has no clue on it, just kind of reaffirms the idea of her passivity in the role of just where she is, like in terms of the family. I think Sarah, I don't think she's passive at all. I think she knows what's going on. Oh, sorry, I meant allowing it to happen. Or she's very aware, but she just letting things fall by the wayside. Yeah, and I, I think that, I feel a lot for Sarah too, because. But I also don't because letting your child go through that is just like unfathomable. But like, we don't know like everything she's dealt with. Because I mean, if, if Bob has been in Leland since he was a child, then that side, it can't be a complete mystery to her. And that can't be a new, a new thing, you know, right when Laura turns 12. Like it's always been there. So I think she probably has a fear. And I know this is one where not all fans are on the same page, but for a thing in the final dossier where uh, the frog moth, where it's basically confirmed that that is Sarah. And for me, when I, even before reading the final dossier, the first time I watched part eight, I thought it made perfect sense that that would be mm -hmm. Sarah. That would also, because I heard, like, I would say that I think it's Judy. I've heard people say it's like the jumping man. Uh, just because there's that scene in season three, I forget which part it is, but you see the jump man basically run down the stairs as a superimposed face of Sarah Palmer, which by the way, the first time you realize that it is absolutely horrifying. I might need to rewatch that. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I think maybe I'll, maybe I'll post a picture of the jumping man with Sarah Palmer at some point, maybe before the scoring, uh, at least after. The next scene I had in mind was with uh, Leland where he's rocking back and forth with this like hate and vindictiveness in him. And then you see basically, I guess, quote unquote, Leland return. The scene always moves me every time because you see like him walk into Laura's room and you just see like him like genuinely teary eyed. And then you also see Laura where she looks like kind of scared of him. Like she doesn't know what he's going to do this time. But the fact that he feels so genuinely sad, that also kind of changes like her tone as well. She looks at the picture of the angels and she just, 
she wants to find some sort of guidance, but it's just too much for her to take in. That that is like a pivotal moment because it's like if you don't necessarily. Because I've known people that have watched Fire Walk with me before Twin Peaks, and I'm like, what? Why? Because they like just don't know, but. There's a feeling of like, even though you know what's going to happen, it, it almost feels like there might be a change in that moment, if that makes sense. Like, maybe it won't turn out so bad, even though we know how it turns out. And it, it does break my heart for Leland, like, a ton. Because I wonder if he even knows, like, what he did, or if he, because he mentions that he has, like, blackout holes in his memory, or if his body just remembers, like, something bad happened. And he sees Laura's face, and she looks scared. This is something I'll probably expand further near the end, but I almost view it as we're going with it in terms of possession, is that there's a, even if he doesn't remember it, there's still these clues to set off the idea that there's something horribly wrong, and he feels like he's responsible for it. It's like from a psychology standpoint, I guess, I'm not a psychologist, but you know, your body has memory, you might not have the memory in your head, but your body remembers like certain traumas. And if he isn't a willing participant in the abuse, like that's, that's traumatizing on some level for him, if he's not a participant. And so I think he, he has a lot of body memories. And he knows, like you said, he knows that something is so off and so horrible, but he's just not sure what. And he's probably scared to find out the answer. This whole movie, at least when I view Laura's arc in this movie, I do view it as what it takes to confront an awful truth. And like every step she takes to desperately remember, like something that seems to be obvious, but when you do lie to yourself, it is hard to confront like your true self and confront a conflict that you are dealing with. And especially on such a magnitude. And especially when you're 17. Like I feel like sometimes, I mean, it's different when you like read The Secret Diary or when you see her in the scenes at school but there's something about her that seems so much older and so you almost forget that she's still a kid dealing with all that put aside how people view life at 17 like regardless of what they're going through but there's more fantastical forces around her like the scene i'm surprised i actually glossed over is that i'm thinking of the chalfonts when they're outside of the double r diner they have the the picture saying this would look nice on your wall this is a scene where it makes me think of that scene from the simpsons where homer he watches (laughs) twin peaks as This is the most brilliant thing ever. I have no idea what's going on. I feel like sometimes every time I get closer to figure out like who I think the Chalfonts are, I just feel like I just step further away. I think that there's something, it's almost like a, if I'm going with to a certain extent of the abuse become the abuser in some capacity, that this is like the Chalfonts kind of forcing this way for Laura to become, I don't know, give in to her more nefarious side. Because um, mm-hmm. I think of when she gets that picture, she does hang up on her wall. Since we're on the talk of the dream, did you have any particular insights on how you view that scene or how it's changed over time for you? I mean, the, the picture, I feel like definitely kind of starts to open, again, more of like a the paranormal side to where you take. Well, I've always viewed the Chaffons from a very simple perspective as Black Lodge spirits. And the Black Lodge or the Lodge spirits, I guess, maybe not even Black Lodge, are not good. They might not be as bad as like Bob, but they're not always good. And they feed off of Garbonbosia and pain and suffering. So they're going to nudge her in the right direction of being able to get their Garbonbosia. Going more firmly into the dream, and more specifically with Dale Cooper and the man from another place, The Ring, uh, this scene is something where even people who do do watch this movie even on a semi-regular basis I feel like they don't quite understand the ring mostly because of this scene because yeah. uh you know with uh Dell he looks at the man from another place who in this movie is way more nefarious and terrifying than he ever was <laughs> in the original series 
but you know he's very insistent on Laura to not take the ring and I'm not sure if it's like specifically for that moment but uh, I guess on the top of Cooper is that it seems like he doesn't quite understand Bob's motivations I'm not even going anything like with part 17 or rescuing Laura it's just that I think he forgets about the fact that Bob does not want to kill her but rather possess her which is bad enough, but uh, oh, certainly more than bad enough. But there's just something about how I think he's losing sight in some ways that uh, he oh, kind of yeah. has this way of where he wants to help people in the moment, but he doesn't quite know what's good in the moment compared to what's, what would be good in the long run. He's, yeah, he's got a little bit of the white knight going on. Come in now, save the day, and then not necessarily think about the consequences of the future or what the future might behold. But that, yeah, the whole dream sequence. One thing I've accepted that like my husband just can't necessarily get on board with he likes david lynch movies but sometimes i just take the scenes where maybe i can't completely understand what's going on and i just go with like the feeling that they give me and how they make me feel watching it like am i uncomfortable am i like mesmerized am i sad and i just roll with that and i don't try too hard to pick it apart i guess the thing that's like worth bringing up is that with david lynch uh obviously transcendental meditation is a huge deal for him like he's he's done it every day for it's gotta be close to 40 years now and what probably feels to write to him on the day-to-day -day basis or in that moment or what ideas come to him that there's something about that in particular where i think a lot of his core ideas are there but, you know, there's something that he can articulate on that other filmmakers can't. For example, how, like, how many times have you been able to not understand something, but you just feel something's horribly wrong in his movies? Yeah, there's some about, especially this scene, where it's like all the people where it's like, like, a lot of us feel like we don't quite understand the ring, but we'd all feel strongly about it one way or another still. Yeah, and the whole, I mean... So much of all David Lynch, not even just from Peaks, is like dreams. And like, think about all the dreams that you have. I know for me, like I'll wake up sometimes and I'm just like, what the hell just happened in my head? And so I feel like maybe we're not necessarily supposed to understand everything about that dream. Kind of with the dream, I guess almost within a dream, where uh, Laura quote unquote wakes up and she sees Annie next to her in the bed. And of course, you know, when you think of the missing pieces, some about that scene at least fits in a little bit more. But yeah, that's a, that's another scene where I, what I think of it, when Laura is presented the ring, you hear the fire just brewing and then she closes it and then it just stops. I read uh, your Laura disappeared a month or so ago. And apparently in the script, when she looks out of the doorway and it's like the door in the painting, it's actually, according to the script, I believe it's some effect of, Laura is looking at herself in bed sleeping. That, I, I don't think I really got that the first time, or actually, I don't, I don't think I really got that at all until I read that part. It would make sense because maybe the painting is more like a portal like between the dream world and her world. That's a really good point to bring up because this next day when she gets up, uh, of course she feels something wrong of the picture she hung up, so she puts it down. But then her demeanor changes, uh, especially around Donna, like from that point on, where she's wearing all black. She has this uh, this more, is femme fatale the right word? There's definitely a certain way that she handles herself where it's definitely different than what we saw originally in the movie. The scene that I think of is that when she arrives at the roadhouse, I just think of the contrast with like the red like behind her and then uh, the log lady telling her about how difficult it is to put this fire out. That's my all-time, let me just say that is my all-time favorite scene in any movie ever. From the moment she walks up to the roadhouse and speaks with the log lady to when she sits down at the table with the men. I can like recite every word from that scene, it's sad. 
That's a scene that I actually have a lot of notes about this scene in particular, because the first thing she does is that she looks in the dark reflection of herself. And I know that we are saying with Lynch where his viewpoint may or may not change, at least in the slightest way, every day when he does TM or just how he gets his ideas. But there's something I think about like how he uses reflections. In this case, she's looking at a darker reflection. Because I feel like this is around the scene from maybe this point onward. She starts like, I guess, confronting things in herself more so. I'll get to that as we go to the upcoming scenes, but what I do have in mind about the scene of questions in a world of blue is that, you know, you have this 17-year-old girl at a bar just bursting into tears. A sleazy bar. It is a, it's like a gross, sleazy, like, not a place for a 17-year-old girl. And then you have these two guys who are clearly just complete scumbags, like, going up to this table. And then also there's a pretty contentious uh, interaction where she, like, she grabs him below the belt and is really just, like, pinching down pretty do hard. And the things that I think of, like, when I was in high school, there was a restaurant near me where one of the high schoolers got served a drink. And that was, like, a huge deal. Like, this guy almost got arrested for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, this restaurant like, it was pretty severely compromised in its reputation. And I think of when I did the episode about Harry Truman with James where... We talk about the proximity of the bookhouse boys with the roadhouse and how these bookhouse boys where they have this whole idea of finishing what the law couldn't start basically but there's this thing literally in their eyesight that they haven't gotten to and then you think of like even the pilot where you have like ed and norma being at the roadhouse it's a place like in a small town that you think that someone would know is the homecoming queen in plain sight. It's like uh, how in uh, at, at Laura's funeral when Bobby talks about how we all knew she was suffering, but we did nothing. This scene is like the thing that single-handedly reaffirms it for me. Well, and in some way, like I feel like, like exactly like Bobby says, everybody knew what was going on, but they turn a blind eye. Like she was suffering in plain sight in a lot of ways and nobody, nobody helped her. And like the whole scene at the road or the, is she at the roadhouse? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's yeah, the roadhouse. Yeah. When she's at the roadhouse, like that whole scene, like I said, for me is my favorite. And I feel like that is her moment where she accepts her fate and when she accepts that she's going to die. Like that is that is that moment. And that's why you see such a a a big change in her. And she seemed a little erratic, like when she does grab Buck and starts like, you know, she's all sensual when she's talking to him. And then she like does this 180 of like, you know, you want to fuck the homecoming queen. And like, you see this other side and it's like, oh God. <laughs> and that's not even going with the fact that Donna's watching this on the other end. And then uh, Donna still insists on uh, going with them. She doesn't know it's the pink room, but she's looking at this and thinking like, I'm not going to give up. And uh, I guess now we have to get to the pink room where I don't think in any other movie have I ever seen anything that just made me feel just repulsed and also engaged because of how the scene played out. Because Everything about this place just feels gross and just like the most vile place. And, uh, and and I'm so surprised other movies don't do this, but the fact that you can barely hear what they're saying and you need subtitles, it just feels like way more accurate than what you see in other movies. Because whenever you go, and it doesn't have to be dingy like the pink room, but when you go to a place with like loud music, you can barely hear each other. Oh, yeah. And, and so the, there's like that certain authenticity, even if everything that they're all saying like especially shock is just making absolutely no sense they're just something that just it just has this certain realism that just makes everything in the scene just all the more horrific well and david lynch like one of my favorite things about him is like is his use of sound like i've talked about this with my husband a lot like because he loves tarantino and tarantino's thing is dialogue and a lot of talking and i can't stand that it bores me to hell but david lynch has this way not just using like visual 
but he uses sound to paint a picture and to like the scene in the pink room, like you feel like you're in the pink room, especially if you watch that movie in theaters and it's loud and you're like, you're in there with her. And like you said, other movies don't really do that in the same way. And it, it kind of gives it a special, special feel. On a side note, when we saw Firewalk Me, it was probably the worst sound I've ever heard in a theater. But <laughs> in Fayetteville, I, or yeah, Fayetteville, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I did see Inland Empire earlier this month, at the time of this recording. I didn't realize how horrifying the sound is in that movie until it's I saw it in theaters. And it Especially also made... with the rabbits. Oh, that, that ominous, just, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> and it made me realize, oh, maybe I need to get a good sound system for when I do my upcoming rewatch for Twin Peaks. Because I feel like it. now now that I realize why I'm missing out on what I see in theaters... And also at the time of this recording, I've yet to see Lost Highway in theaters, which I plan on going to. And I can only imagine how that's going to feel when I see that on the big screen. That, have you seen Eraserhead in theaters? Because that sound will mess you up. I remember actually in some cases the lack of sound. I saw it back in 2009, and I just remember just like, not that I got the movie, but I think the first time I watched it, <laughs> I had friends that like were looking at my reaction and thinking like, oh, what's Colin going to say? What's Colin going to say? But when you sit in a theater and you just it's just you and the movie... They're just like yeah. this visceral feeling you got. Yeah, so this is yeah. a movie that I would, if you walk me, I would definitely want to go see in a theater again because I think all the grosses, well, every time you feel like you've see, seen and felt everything you had to offer, the sound of uh, of this movie and the pink room will just make you feel like the deepest recesses of just like the most repulsive nature. Oh yeah, it's like you're in this seedy bar with, with them like watching it happen and, and feeling it. And I think that's like, David Lynch just has such a special way of, being able to do that with sound or like an eraser head lack of sound. And I feel like he gives very ominous, like he can make things ominous with just like the slightest of sounds. And I think that is so cool. <laughs> the other thing I'm thinking of is that uh, with Donna, where they pass the drinks around. I remember the first few times I watched it, I saw what when they clearly spiked the drink. I thought Laura saw it in her line of sight. But then I thought of like when she sees Donna after she's drugged that she didn't. On my subsequent rewatches, I can't help but shake the feeling that she sees it because when she says chug a lug, Donna. And and again, you actually, I think you actually had a really good point. You said that there's these like massive like shifts in how she presents herself. That for whatever reason that she put Donna in this situation and saw it and basically like push her. But at the same time. There is something about when she that light casts over her when she sees Donna and she's uh, clearly not herself. Mm-hmm. I think so. I guess coming from again someone that was very much in Laura Palmer's situation, and this is just like could just be a total personal take on all that. But in in some way, I think she wanted Donna to experience some of her pain in that moment, and sort of being like, well. If you're going to come along for this ride, then this is what you get. And then it's like a light bulb goes off when she sees what's happening to Donna. And she realizes like, oh, my God, like she's not equipped for this. And she doesn't know what's happening. And the the good Laura, quote unquote, people can't see my air quotes, but kind of shines in that moment. And she's like, what, you know, what did I do? And that's why, you know, and she's like, don't wear my clothes. She doesn't want Donna to be like that. That's one thing. And uh, this is partially why I think Maura Kelly's Donna retroactively makes Laura Flynn Boyles more interesting. Is that when I watched the original series, when she would put on the sunglasses, I basically thought it was just Donna's just trying to be cool. I mean, not even putting anything behind the scenes. It's just, it, it's just something that she just like, that sprung up on her in like a 
early, like in a crisis post Laura's death. But the thing is that Laura, the next morning, she's talking to Donna and she's saying, I don't want you wearing my stuff. Uh, the first time I watched it, I thought like maybe Donna didn't remember the night before. And this is just what she's saying to kind of like, you know, just kind of thwart that off. But the the more I watch it, the more I think to myself that, no, there's something, come back to what I was saying, the subtle physical power that Laura has, that there's something about the clothes that she wears, that there is something that can trickle down to other people. Well, and you can kind of tell that in some ways Donna looks up to Laura. And I think, especially as a girl, like, Everybody feels kind of good when someone looks up to them. And so there's probably that level of Laura that's like, oh, you know, doesn't mind it. But Laura knows how deep her darkness goes. And that's why she's like, don't wear my stuff. Don't be like me, please. Like, I know she doesn't say those exact words, but I I think that, you know, if Donna started wearing her clothes and acting like her, like, we don't need Laura (laughs) 2.0. Then, of course, uh, Leland comes in and throws a wrench in multiple ways for this scene. It's a weird, uncomfortable scene. That scene makes me actually, like, extremely uncomfortable the way, because it almost, in a way, looks like Laura and Donna are, like, about to kiss or something. That's that's what I thought. And then, like, the transition of Laura and Ronette also doesn't really help the matters with this either. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, like, even putting aside where people stand on Leland and Bob, it's still just, like, an uncomfortable just connection all around. Yeah, because it's, like, the way he's looking at them the way and the way they're looking at each other, like, I don't look at my friends that way. Like, I have a lot of best, best friends, and I, I guess I don't have never had a moment where, where we looked at each other like that. So there's just something uncomfortable all around. It's like almost sexually charged when it shouldn't be sexually charged. And this is kind of, again, the more esoteric aspects of it. But I think of the scene when Laura and Leland are driving and the one or man is like pretty much tailgating them. I can't help but think of like the fact that they're both wearing green when they're presented with the ring because... I know Lynch is very deliberate with his color and, you know, you can get certain people are pretty dead set on their interpretations for blue or red or black, but for green, this is one where I just never really had a 100% comfortable answer. I feel like it's something where it's like almost neutral, but it's also like it can skew in a more malevolent aspect. That's kind of how I view the ring as well, but I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on like the use of colors uh, for this scene in particular. You know, I didn't. I haven't paid too much attention again to the the colors in that scene just because of how emotionally charged that scene is like, but I, you know, thinking about it, I have, yeah, you hear for days theories about blue and red, but I haven't heard any theories about green before. I don't necessarily think the ring is, is bad. I think it might be one of those things that like it's neutral, but whoever has it is kind of what decides if it's more going to be used for good or bad. The only other scene, uh, at least in this movie, that uses green is the introduction of Philip Jeffries. You know, of course, we learn he's not a malevolent figure, but the way that scene presents it, that there's something truly unsettling. And I think of, so I combine what I think of green from that scene and I carry it over into this. I mean, of course, you know, Philip Jeffries and the room above the convenience store, those scenes, they're concurrent with the movie, but not necessarily concurrent with time. But I think there's some about how when Philip Jeffries is introduced and how the ring is introduced, that there is some sort of tie-in. The reason why I bring this up is that the one-armed man, you can barely hear it because of like all the sounds and just the anxiety building up. But he does say to Laura, he says, and miss the look on her face when it opened, it being the corn, there was a stillness like a formica tabletop. 
And uh, the thing is that the man from another place, he's caressing the table saying, this oh is a Formica God. table. <laughs> Green is its color. Yeah, it's there's just like this connection of when Lynch explains something, that usually means he's replacing it with another question that you feel like is insurmountable. <laughs> this is very true. Even in early on, when Sam Stanley's and Agent Desmond, they're just talking about Will the Dancer, where a Agent Desmond just explains everything but the blue rose to him, but you still just feel like just not getting anything uh, in terms of like a concrete answer. Absolutely. And I've, I've always wondered too, like, it's not just like, I guess a small thing, but why a formica table? Like, what is it? Because I feel like that's mentioned a few times. And it's like, what? The only thing I could find from it <laughs> is that it's either a conductor of electricity or it deflects electricity. I think it's a conductor for electricity. Once again, some that's introduced in the room above a convenience store, where it's the close up of the mouth saying electricity. And of course, electricity is also a prominent feature in any of Lynch's films. That's the thing is that I knew that when I was going to talk primarily about Fire Walk with me, this was kind of going to be the proof that I really don't have the answers on a lot of stuff. <laughs> Not that I can explain it, but there's just stuff that I'm still trying to figure out in real time anyways. If I were to come back to this a year or two from now, I'd probably have something completely different, whether it's more concise or not. Do you ever feel that way whenever you think about Fire Walk with me? Absolutely. I feel that way when I think of a lot, like every David Lynch movie. And I think that's my favorite thing, like about Fire Walk With Me or anything is maybe there's not answers. And I know there's a lot of people that in general, like kind of snobby, like film nerds. I don't know what to say, like call groups of people, but like to think that they have the answers and they know and that their theory is correct. But I think the beauty of Lynch is maybe none of us are right. Maybe we're all right. I don't Sometimes I don't think Lynch necessarily has an answer, like a concrete answer. And that's why it's awesome. <laughs> I know in the case of Mulholland Drive with the blue key and then the blue box, where I think it was in Catching the Big Fish where he says, I don't know what the key in the box mean. Yeah, and it's just cool. And maybe it means something, but I think it means something, you know, it means something different to everybody. And I think even like you said, when you go back in a year, in two years, three years and watch it again, you might get something different out of it because that's like what you need or what you see at that point in your life. And there's not many movies where you can do that. Like, you know what you're going to get most of the time when you go and rewatch a movie. This is a scene I'm surprised I uh, overlooked before, but it, early on when we were talking about the uh, scene with Lauren Harold, one of the things that actually stood out to me on my last rewatch was that with Harold, when Laura says, I don't know when I'll see you again, maybe never. You see on Lenny Von Dolan's face where it's like this realization, like he goes to the door, but he doesn't ever go beyond it. But then you see in season two where Donna's just toying with the diary. And actually he does get to the point where he actually takes one step out. And to me, I look at that scene and it really shows that there's a distinct loyalty that he has. Like he, he doesn't, he might at that point, Laura's dead and, you know, she's never going to come back, but he does want to honor that wish of preserving the secrets in her diary. Even, like, small, like whether it's esoteric stuff or character-based stuff, there's always stuff that will just, like, stand out to me in Lynch's films, like, every time I rewatch them. And that's that's why he's my favorite director and artist in the whole world. <laughs> so I was mentioned earlier about Laura's, how, like, she would have a bravery that would emerge as the movie would go on. I think the first one that really stands out to me is that when she's sitting in the car with Leland, where she's like mortified of everything that just happened, like with a one-armed man, Leland's like pretty uh, pretty on edge himself, but then she still finds that it's like appropriate to ask about him going to the house, 
Which, by the way, I actually, I, that was another scene where when uh, Laura sees Leland walk out of the house, just that, uh, just that, one. yeah, that, that's like a reaction where that's not like, you know, just like a traditional actor. That, it feels like someone who's like in the middle of a legitimate breakdown. And that's, uh, that's another one that just, that just crushes me every time I watch it. When you think of how she feels in that scene and that she still feels compelled to ask Leland, I saw you walking out of the house and the thing is that you know he kind of has this it's not the great excuse but he comes up with one but the thing yeah. is that when she asks it's like a we're, like i think some about like were you home at first and he just looks and says no like with the worst poker face ever and the fact that he yells the mechanics to leave them alone just really makes it so much worse it's so uncomfortable and you, you feel the tension that they're feeling with each other you see those close-ups on shirley's face where she looks terrified and also clearly unhappy with him being evasive about it. Because she's, she knows, and I think that kind of going back to that scene where she's hiding under the bush and she's like, it's not him, it's not him. Like, that's, I mean, I think most people might take it the way that that's when she has the realization, starts to realize that, like, Leland and Bob are one and the same. <laughs> so that's hard to watch her get crushed by that that realization when i first watched that scene i thought like you know when she says it's not him it's not him that there's almost like a she didn't see them both at the same time so it's like the last resort of maybe he happened to be there and it, you know it's like it's, it's the flimsiest thing she can go on but the it's it's a lot it's like confirm the truth is like just too arduous at that point oh yeah i'd much rather believe that it's you know like oh they're you know just a coincidence than like my father's been the one doing this to me. Like, it's sort of like she's hanging on to that last tiny thread of like, maybe it's not him. The next scene, it goes to later on that night at eight o'clock. And I think of the, how deliberate Lynch is with numerology. I mean, of course, there's part eight in the return. And then also the way Phil Jeffries presents it in season three, because or okay. it's like a almost like a almost like an infinity sort of thing because this scene again i don't know if i could properly articulate it on this show but there's something about this scene that just like is the most gripping part of the whole movie for me i guess you know this the song night sea wind is probably my favorite piece of music by angelo Badalamenti. it just feels like she's in the presence of like a distinct and true evil because while she's having this confrontation leland is downstairs fuming over Teresa banks and the thing that's interesting is that when Leland's thinking about killing Teresa Banks, it's not Bob, it's just Leland, who had a very distinct reason to go and kill her. So I think of how, what's going on downstairs, and then Laura, like, you see, like, the light just above her, and she hears the electricity saying, who are you? Like, as if she's getting, you know, now that she's asked Leland, confronted him, that she's going to confront this malevolent force that's, like, in her home. I like that. That's one of those scenes. I always get nervous around that scene. I know the scene that's coming and I usually have to leave the theater for that. But yeah, and you I guess there's like a weird like juxtaposition of like Leland slash Bob knows because he saw Laura at Teresa's motel, I guess. And then so he knows Laura's secrets and Laura is starting to know his secrets, but they still have to live together without knowing that the other knows. And it's like this weird just awful and i think that adds to like the ominous especially as the audience because like we're seeing all of it unfold and yeah when the when the light comes on and she looks up and 
That is like a pretty pivotal moment. I think there's something about like when the light shines over her that there is something good is emerging from her. Like there's a certain distinct progression that she's bettering herself in a way or she's becoming more active about getting to the bottom of who Bob really is and who's been doing this to her for years at this point. And a part of it, like I've always kind of seen it as the angels too. Like the angels might not be like right there fighting the good fight, but like they're kind of guiding her on that the journey to her figuring it out and that's why there's like the light and she's looking up towards the sky the two scenes in between before we get back to leland is that there's the shootout with bobby and then the drug deal which is actually a very anxiety inducing scene i mean i don't know if there's anything i could possibly say about that hasn't already been said but it just has that like feeling of like being lost in the woods and then you just have this feeling of how the hell do we get out of this and then you just lose it well and especially like I, and that's it. I always feel Bobby's pain because he's panicking and trying to like, there is by it. She's just like sitting there giggling and like throwing little like chunks of the ground on the body. And he's just like, what are you like? You don't realize the magnitude of this. And that I feel that frustration. Not that I've ever killed anybody or will kill anybody. But if I was in Bobby's shoes, I would be losing my damn mind. <laughs> Around this time, there's also James comes over to see Laura. Because, you know, at this point, she's back on drugs and he's concerned for her. And I think, actually, come back to what I was saying about Leland and Bobby dynamic. I think the reason why I always felt so ingrained by it is because you, there's that scene when James and Laura are talking and Leland just stand there with this ominous presence. I think even put aside just like what we know about Leland, there's just something about James from the outside looking in that's like, this is just weird that i probably shouldn't be here at this time that yeah that that whole thing is once i mean this whole movie is uncomfortable but that's a very uncomfortable scene but i think at that point the curtains are being pulled like they don't have this outward sense of show that they're the perfect family and stuff and like it's starting to peel through like the illusion is fading and i think that that kind of just shows because if leland was like that towards bobby or leland was like that towards anybody like her whole life I feel like it would have been a lot more obvious to people and harder to ignore but since the illusion is fading and Bob seems to be inhabiting or coming forward in Leland more often so I think that's just actually a really good indicator of that that's a good thing to keep in mind going forward again that's why I like having the show is that you know <laughs> I, I never want to feel like I get stuck in a certain viewpoint that if you talk to someone else that there will be this other thing someone will bring up and it just like will change a certain dynamic and then just like lead to a different slew of like how you feelings for a particular scene or character but now unfortunately now we have to talk about like this scene the who are you scene which by the way this scene i've had like just different reactions each time because this is the type of movie where i feel different I, I have different reactions every time like there's been times where i've cried or there's been times where i felt faint even and this is one of those scenes where i i've i, I definitely had a visceral upset feeling like even knowing what's going to happen but just like just the way all this plays out when bob like emerges like into you know from her window yeah, that, I'll be honest, I've watched Firewalk with me countless amounts of times, but I've only watched this scene maybe two or three times, and not to go on, like, a tangent, but I think part of the reason Laura Palmer is so special to so many Twin Peaks fans is, like I said, at least for me personally, like, living living through what Laura did, though it wasn't my dad, my dad's great, but, like, 
growing up and finding Laura Palmer while I was dealing with my own trauma, it was like she was my friend. And clearly I know she's not real and she's a character, but I feel like she embodies so much of what a lot of us have gone through as abuse victims. And I think that's part of what makes her as a character so special. And maybe people that haven't been through some traumas might not be able to relate as much. And you know, I've seen the horrible things. It's the internet. The people write about how Laura like is just a whore and Laura like doesn't really matter to the show, which I'm like, okay. <laughs> but that scene I it's hard for me to watch because it is so realistic. And I think about from an outside perspective, like how uncomfortable was that to film? <laughs> like for the actors, because it is so intense. And playing her father, like, obviously Ray Wise isn't her father, but just being in that role has to just be so... Ugh. It's also coming back to the whole idea that when Ray Wise was filmed the original series, he was not happy when he found out he was the killer. <laughs> uh, that, of course, uh, you know, it's already bad enough that Bob, from the, through the lens of the show, was possessing him. But for a movie to make it ambiguous just makes it, just amplifies how horrific that is. And for Shirley and Ray Wise, I know that Ray Wise talked about how they would try to line up the mood, like, you know, in between takes because they knew they were filming some incredibly horrifying subject matter. But yeah. I, I feel like no matter, because the thing is that Ray Wise and Shirley clearly like each other a lot. Like they have a great friendship, but they're just somewhere, no matter how good of friends you are, no matter how much you respect them as like friends or uh, fellow uh, cast members, they're just like this inherent, just just this horrifying feeling of having to do with scenes like that. Well, because as an actor, you have to like feel those emotions and you can see it like in Shirley's face. And she's talked about how she carried Laura around with her for a long time. And so being the amazing actress, she is like, you see it in her face, like in that moment it's acting, but she's feeling those things. And, you know, even though it's acting, like once you feel those things towards somebody and, some some conscious part of your brain it has to be hard to like after the scene be like oh hey like let's go grab a drink even though we just filmed the scene where you're my father assaulting me like yeah. it blows my mind <laughs> the, apart from like her scream before it fades out just like the way that she's like borderline shaking at the table the next day and it comes back to the whole idea of like why Shirley is so great in the scene because there's just like a way that she handles herself with her mannerisms and her eye contact that is mm -hmm. some that very few people can do and just makes everything feel all the more real because this is a scene where you know it's like what i was mentioned before about sarah's passivity where even if somehow this was like the most well-kept secret there's something about the dynamic between lauren leland that just that just you know it's like it, it's impossible to ignore moving over to the more use of color in lynch's movies is that i think barring her last scene uh, Sarah Palmer is always wearing red in every scene throughout the movie. So I, you know, I, again, like there's a, you know, I, I don't know if I have like a clear cut answer of like what he's aiming for with it, but I do think there's definitely some about, about that where he, you know, how deliberate he is with his use of color and like what this means for Sarah, especially since, you know, smoking, he puts in his movies as a sign of like almost like a harbinger for fire. And, uh, you know, you see earlier in the movie when Donna comments on, like, the two filled ashtrays of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because also that scene, she's also just, like, pulls out a cigarette then. So 
Uh, and then, of course, there's the scene where Leland goes upstairs. And, of course, it's in her bedroom. But uh, he's asked what's wrong. And then just the way that Laura says, stay away from me, you just uh. feel every syllable of it. Then we get to the scene in high school where, you know, she's seeing the time going forwards and backwards. Uh, I don't think it 100% ties in what I was saying before about the sense of time with what she was wearing with clothes. Just because this is like at her peak of just being in the most like horrified state that you could possibly be in. But, uh, you know, you think of how like that whole dime, kind of like with the roadhouse, but she's clearly upset throughout the day. But no one, not even James is really doing anything. Like there's a scene where he looks at her, but he doesn't say or do anything. Yeah, that. And as she stands up and the tear falls, I feel like that is, it's a very small, like short scene, but it's very powerful because at least for me, like I, I've been there when you're living that trauma, time really does almost feel like that. And you lose, you lose parts of the day, you lose parts of like, especially if you're sitting in class, it, it's, to me, that's like one of the last parts of the illusion falling away for her. Like she is at that point really in the biggest throes of, aside from her death, like of that trauma. Yeah. Um, then, uh, you know, then we have after school where she goes to see Bobby and, uh, you know, he, he, this is the point where he's at least honest with himself, where he knows that she's just doing this for the drugs and, it, you know, it's like, uh, I think it, again, we were saying before about the, I loved her and she loved me scene it just reaffirms the idea that he's just projecting, but it is, I still think this is actually a very good scene on Dana Ashbrook's end because um, I know that behind the scenes, he had a bad flight coming in and he literally filmed that scene after getting out from the airport. So he has that just like completely worn out look on his face of just like being defeated and miserable. But, you know, coming back to Laura, um, actually I'm going to, you know, segue to the missing pieces for a little bit because in this, you know, in the missing pieces around this point, that's when Dr. Jacoby calls her. And he obviously he doesn't know the whole Leland Bob aspect. But you know what him calling like, you know, being a middle aged man calling for like, you know, basically like a, a, a very asking for a sensual tape is pretty much the last thing Vora really wants at this point. Well, and especially like that just goes to show the I mean, he's supposed to be the psychiatrist, the doctor, someone that she should in reality be able to trust but he's just another man that's exploiting her yeah. or even like in the secret diary when uh like uh, i think she first meets him when she's uh playing the uh bow and arrow with johnny and uh she immediately says she can feel the attraction from him and then he says he's in love with the quote-unquote two lauras and yeah it, so it, it really sets off just a just a very just horribly nefarious just dynamic for the two of them uh, obviously way more on the end of jacoby just by virtue of just where he is in terms of you know his profession and his, yeah. his behavior but yeah the uh but then of course we get the uh, scene where uh laura sees james and this is a scene where i felt like you know very upset in like different spots like i remember like you know when i read the secret diary and watched the movie in one night where uh, the scene when she says your lord disappeared, it's just me now. There, there's just like this, like you know, irreversible hopelessness in her that that is like really hard to. That's just really hard to like you know get through. That yeah, that whole scene, another crying point for me. Like that, and I was very shook in season three of. <laughs> 
Twin Peaks when they go in that whole. I was like falling out of my chair. <laughs> I, actually, I, I talk about this with people because I look at the way people talk about that scene part 17, where it's like you get people where, you know, they feel strongly one way or another, or you, you get some people where it's like, this is where like just Twin Peaks just completely crash and burn for them. No, I, I, I guess, you know, on the topic before we move on to the rest of Firewalk with me, and this comes back to a whole Dale Cooper just doesn't understand long-term ramifications is that, you know, people can say what they will about his motivations for rescuing Laura, but I think for him, if he did anything else, it would just feel out of character. It, it just, you know, I think of the scene in, after Leland's death where Major Briggs, he talks about like, you know, I forget how he phrased it, but you know, do we have to really understand the evil? And uh, Dale Cooper says it's our duty to do anything to uh, to get to the bottom of this. I think he just has this very tunnel vision of how to how yes. to do things, and he doesn't understand he's making a bad situation worse. Yeah, so I, so that's how I've come to terms with the scene because there there's a lot of ramifications of basically erasing the rest of what we're about to talk about. But yeah, yeah. I, I just felt like you know. It's just like we can't really get beyond the James scene without talking about this one. Yeah, and that it it kind of takes on a whole new meaning. And I I love the scene in Firewalk with me with Laura and James at the end because you kind of see the struggle she's having, I guess with with both Laura's, you know, and you watch her eyes change when she's like, wait, no, like that's not what I mean, or like, and then she gets like super angry and. When she's James says them, you hurt the ones you love, and she's like, are the ones you pity, and you just you see this. She's trying so hard to push James away, and she's struggling with it because she doesn't want to. Yeah, because I remember in the uh, again come back to reading the secret diary and watching the movie in, in a short setting is that she talks about how she feels like Bob will you know she has to like basically discard all these like bonds she has because Bob will get to them. And then when you see that in such a short span, and then she has this, uh, I forgot how she says exactly, but something about how Bob will find you. Uh, it, it, it's just something else that just, it just really adds to just like, just the distress that she has. Especially because she's like, almost like talking to herself at that point. Because James has no idea what she's talking about when she's having those like kind of internal monologues but out loud it's sort of like when uh when james uh when she says bobby killed a guy you know he has yeah. like come on bobby didn't kill a guy like it's not even like he wants to ask any further about what happened it's just he just immediately just thinks that could, you can't possibly be in the right state of mind right now exactly and she doesn't even like it doesn't seem like she registers that she's like saying these things out loud it's just like a stream of consciousness and again that just shows like the final, I guess, break in in before what's going to happen. I actually, uh, before we finish up on the James scene, I I remember the the for the day after I watched it for the first time, the one scene that not the one, but one of the scenes that was run through my mind the most was uh, when she gets off the motorcycle and she's like, you know, don't, and then she grabs like holds him and says, "I love you, James," just screaming it, and then runs off. There again, you know, people can say what they want about James, but there's just some about the way, like the conviction of like, you know, how she feels in that moment. Because, you know, when James talks about in the pilot, you just kind of accept the idea that Laura was not herself. Uh, yeah, I never thought the scene would be that powerful once we arrived to it in the movie. I mean, everything Cheryl Lee does is so powerful, but 
Yeah, it, it seems like a very like passing moment when it's talked about, but when you see it, it's a whole different, a whole different feel, and it shows that that's that last push that she loves James. She does somewhere in her, but she knows she's accepted her fate, and she knows what she has to do. And I know she may not expressly know. Well, I mean, she says tonight is the night that I die. I'm like, in the diary. So it's like she knows she's walking into all of that. Just somewhere in her head knowing. But not how or why. I mean, not necessarily why either. But This is actually one that I've kind of come back and forth on. Is that, you know, of course in the diary she says tonight is the night that I die. But uh, there's been times like in the last few years where I'll contemplate the ideas that would she think of basically ending her life at Jacques and Leo's that night, you know, because there's all the drugs that were presented, uh, at least, or at least drugs that could have potentially been presented or something on the way there, or on the way back, because, uh, you know, the whole idea is that she doesn't want Bob to possess her. And uh, this would be like, you know, a final outing of like basically being removed from him. And again, I've never felt 100% on that, but it's just that, you know, I think of when she says tonight is the night, I just wonder if, like, if she knew something terrible was going to happen or if she was going to be more active in that role. That's actually a really good point. It, I guess it could go either way. And I think, I mean, she knows that her dying is really the only way to escape Bob. So I could see for sure that she might be like, well, like, it, he's so close to getting me now that I have to end it. But yeah, then of course they do get there and uh, we get the, of course we get like basically the pink room song again, but everything just feels so much more miserable and empty. And then of course we get another like, you know, what you were saying before how Shirley elevates every scene uh, where it's like when she's assaulted by Jacques. And I remember there was a, on one of my rewatches when she just saying untie me, Leo. It was just like this like faint feeling that I had of just like, just just the way that she was handling herself just like i don't know just like there's just a way that she was handling herself where it just had a very real feeling to it and uh of course the uh, we have to bring up you know the whole idea that leland is actually watching this whole time which just makes the whole thing all the more horrific yeah seeing his and then like when you go back to the secret it's been a while since i've read the secret diary but there's there's a lot of other talk in the secret diary about the, the parties and the drugs that she was doing. Cause I feel like in the movie, you don't see her that messed up very often, but like that was kind of a way of life for her, like for a long time. And it's just, it's a horrible realization when you realize like that's, that's not a one-off or like a two-off. Yeah. Or the fact that Leo and Jacques had her going to this and, at least 15 again yeah. it's I, I haven't read it in a couple years myself but this was like early high school i mean it's already bad enough that she's in high school doing this but you know you think of like you know when you're you know if you work at certain jobs where you work with someone in high school you don't you realize how truly young that age actually is relative to how old they are they're babies like not literally but it's like my god you don't and she i mean Laura Palmer, in a lot of ways, is such an adult. It's such a, a juxtaposition there. But uh, no, the uh, the scene, the, everything with that scene is already, you know, the, like she's having like the most horrific 24 hours of her life. And then Leland comes in and then you just see Cheryl Lee just like, like, you know, like if you thought she didn't have any more tears left to give, she just, I don't know, the look on her face is something that is always will stick with me. 
And her scream. She has the most incredible scream ever. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, of course, we, uh, you know, they're pushed the train car, which is like, you know, adds more to it. And then, uh, you know, in the case of Balamenti, the music when they're in the train car, just that that's another where it's, uh, you know, you just feel this like distinct terror. Um, I, I don't know. Again, I don't know if there's anything I could say that hasn't been said before, but it's just that I think for me, the most powerful part is when everything stops and then Laura sees the angel. Yeah, it, I, I'm so glad that Lynch, he ended up putting the angels in once we got to filming because uh, without the angels, um, it just it, it just would have felt too hopeless for me. That that little bit of light, it, it does kind of keep the the small glimmer, the smallest glimmer, but a glimmer of hope. And I'll point out too one other thing that in all the times I've seen it in theaters, you know, when Leland is kind of like running through the forest with them or like quickly walking, that scene always has felt a little campy to me like the look on his face and people always laugh at that point too and I just I don't get people can even laugh at all in that movie for the most part like it's so dark and I almost feel like when people are laughing they're not really understanding the tone and I'm like he's literally taking her to kill her like I don't care how campy it is like it's not funny no, it's uh, that's one where uh, like where it's sort of like when we went to go see in Fayetteville, where there's people that laugh at inappropriate moments, and I just think to myself like, yeah, maybe I'll go to see it like at a theater where I'm like one of the few people there, or just it'll just like get a good sound system because it's it's you know I I, I never want to tell someone how they should or shouldn't feel when they watch something, <laughs> I but <will>. also <laughs> but also if I'm in a theater and people are laughing at something that I think is horrific, there there's gonna be it's gonna throw a wrench into it. It does, because when I'm sitting there tearing up and I'm like feeling this emotion and then people are laughing, like it's almost offensive. My husband says the same thing. He's like, you can't tell people how to feel about it. But I'm like, but on some level, if they really understood and maybe again, I probably just take it very personally, but it does definitely throw a little bit of a wrench in the it takes you out of the movie. It takes you out of the moment. But it just it surprises me, I guess, some of the, the scenes that people laugh at. But uh, actually, one of the things, and I remember it was like, it was probably like after multiple times I've watched it, but I think of like after uh, after she is like stabbed, is that, you know, I, I, I you know, I think some people kind of forget that in the original series, Cooper talks about how not one stab was fatal, but enough to make like, you know, just to have enough blood come out. And I think, and I remember like when I, after my first rewatch of the original series, when I watched that scene, I thought of like a POV shot when they're putting the plastic on her. And I wasn't sure if that was Lynch implying that she was still alive even during that moment. And uh, it just, it just makes that scene all the more just like upsetting, like uh, putting that into perspective for me. Yeah. I guess part of me always thought she like was, I'm trying to remember because I've seen it so many times, but I, I always took it that she was still alive because you know, that's when you kind of see but Bob and then Leland, Bob, Leland, Bob, Leland. And I think she's seeing that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I thought as well. And um, I know at this point that she's dead, but uh, one of the things I was thinking of the first time I watched it is that when Leland goes to the Black Lodge and they ask for the Garmin Bosia, I thought of, and I remember the Secret Diary reaffirmed this for me, that the idea is that, I mean, put aside the fact that he killed Laura, that this is how Leland slash Bob represses these memories because he'll go to Glastonbury Grove and then this is how Leland just kind of like, I guess, wipes his memory of it. And the thing is that I'm bringing this up is that in the secret diary, 
Laura talks about how her mother doesn't like going into the woods, but her father does. And she talks about being assaulted in the woods too. So I thought that there was some like connection of like, you know, uh, of like how what Leland's doing to Laura and then how he suppresses it. At least that's how I looked at it, especially early on when I was thinking, trying to figure out the Bob and Leland dynamic. I think that's fair. And like, you know, he, and he does the, with the Garmabosia, that's like, he's dumping all of those memories out. So the lodge spirits can eat. <laughs> yeah. Cause uh, in the, uh, in, in the pilot, um, and of course, you know, if people want to chalk it up to Leland, just, um, you know, basically just putting on a good poker face, I can understand, but it just seems like the way he handles himself in the original series, um, at least throughout the first season, it seems like he genuinely is upset and shocked by her death. I agree. And some, I don't know if part of that's because, Lynch hadn't decided that he was the killer yet. And so we didn't really, you know, have that side of him. But it does add to it. And I think he was, of course, genuinely upset. And maybe at that point, he really didn't know that he did it. And it's a lot more Leland than it is Bob, because I've always seen it as such a progression. Like, Bob's always been there, especially like once you read The Secret Diary. Like, clearly. That's not a new thing, but maybe for Leland, it's like the progression of Bob is starting to come forward more and more and more and leave more memory there. Because I think when Leland dies, if I remember correctly, all the memories come back and he sees what he has done. And that's, that's awful. That's but uh no what i mean of course like this has been uh you know we've been dealing with a lot of like terrible subject matter especially for the last like half hour of this but yeah. um i guess you know like i guess i could probably bring up the you know how did you feel before when you watched fire off me the first time how did you think it was going to end because obviously we knew laura was going to be killed but did you think that there was going to be a certain scene that would tie it all together for you before we got to the angel scene it's hard to say because i started watching David Lynch is kind of a cool story. I only got into Twin Peaks because my high school English teacher showed us, she was a big Lynch fan because she showed us part of Mulholland Drive. She showed us Elephant Man and would very loosely tie it into whatever we were doing in class. And she showed us the last episode of Twin Peaks. So I saw that all out of context and that was super weird. But I was so young, I guess, when I started watching David Lynch movies that a lot of it escaped me. And so... I don't really know what I expected when I watched it at 16. Okay. Because um, the first time I watched it, or even before I went in the movie, I kind of thought that after Laura's death, we cut to like the pilot, like Diane, 11.30 a.m., entering the town of Twin Peaks, and we get like a scene that would kind of recontextualize, like a, like a scene in between the scenes of the pilot of Dale and Laura to tie it all together. And I guess we technically get that with the angel scene, but, you know, just with the way that the voice of love is played and just like how... Lynch just builds up to the angel and Cheryl Lee just like crying with tears of joy. I, I just remember the first time I got to the end credits, I just sat there just frozen the whole time. And I don't think I'm alone on that one. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I think the only reason why I got up is because it was going back to the DVD menu and I had to, I had to actually turn it off. If I, if I didn't have that, I probably would have sat there I don't know how long, but it, it it's it, very few movies can do that to me where you just have this like, you know what happened, but you just you're just letting everything sink in at the same time. And there's so much to sink in. And you've gone on this like roller coaster of mostly not great emotions. But like if 
if you're feeling what Laura felt throughout the movie, like at the end of it, you're just left with this just like raw feeling. And yeah, no, I definitely still sometimes depending on the mindset, because I think you had, um, your previous guest had talked about how she used to watch Firewalk with me every day when she was in a dark place. And that's always been my go-to if I'm in a dark place. And so I usually do like sit there and it's like every time it's still, you just, it's a very long credit scene, but I, I sit through it. And it was the same with the end of episode, um, the end of season three. Like I just sat there and stared at the screen and like <laughs> in shock. That was another one where I did the exact same thing because if I had to pick the two things that made me the fan that I am now, it is Fire Walk with me because that was, yeah, I was so moved by Cheryl Lee in the movie that I, and I've never did this before with any other actor or actress where I just felt the need to meet her and tell her why it meant so much to me. But then, you know, when you get to part 18, it's like the way Lynch just raised more questions than answers where it's like, you don't know what happened and no one can confirm it, but you just have this very distinct feeling that you will like have to let sink in. It might change over time, but the first time you watch it, you just have to sit there. It's raw. Like I always like, especially the first time I watched, I guess Firewalk Me and the end of season three, I just, I felt like a gut punch. I think at the end of season three, I was literally upset. At first I hated that ending. And I was upset for two weeks. Like it genuinely affected my daily life. I was so upset. And I've I've come to terms and I've actually like, I like the ending a lot now, but not a lot of things can make you feel that way. Actually, because we're on the topic of the angels at the end of Fire Walk with me. One of the things I do tell people, and this comes back to the whole idea that, uh, you know, how I view like the mythos of Twin Peaks, like how it would end, if you will. I think of the scene in part 14 when Andy sees the fireman and you have that scene where it shows like Laura's homecoming photo and then it has the angel from Firewalk Me and then it's like mirrored on the other side. I view that as that, you know, with Twin Peaks, we're viewing with two realities where one where Laura is killed and the other where she goes missing. But I view that having that symmetrical angel is a way to show that she will still get that angel in, you know, in some capacity, even that other in that other life, you know, like, I'm not sure whether it's like right after the events of part 18 or what comes after that. But I think that's, uh, that was some that really how I view how, how Laura will was not deprived of it in part 17. I hope not. I really I mean, again, they're fictional characters, but I feel like when you're as invested as in a series as like most of us Twin Peaks fans are, they are kind of real in a way, in like a, a weird sort of way. Like what happens to those characters matters. I absolutely agree. Um, was there anything else? Um, I think I said everything on my end about the last seven days of Laura. Uh, did you have any parting thoughts on it? I think it's one of the most powerful movies I've ever seen as far as depicting abuse. Because you can, there's a lot of movies out there where there's like certain scenes or there's, Someone tells the story, but I feel like there's something magical with Firewalk with me and in a dark, dark sort of magic. But it, it blows my mind that when that movie came out at the at, at Con Film Festival, that people booed it. Like people were expecting, like, if I remember correctly, a continuation of the end of season two. So they were all pretty upset. And there's still people out there today that I've seen that say that uh, Firewalk with me isn't necessary. And I just, I don't think I've ever vehemently disagreed more because we need, I think having that insight into Laura 
and making her a real person and not just a flashback is just unbelievably important. That, that's uh, that's my take on it too, because um, I didn't know that Fire Walking was even a thing until after I finished the original series. I did this thing where after I finished it, I was I I went on Netflix thing in vain that maybe season three is on Netflix. And so when I see it says titles relating to Twin Peaks Fire Walk, I'm like, what's this? I'm thinking like maybe it's a documentary highlighting the original series. So I go on IMDb. I was like, wait, there's a movie about Laura? I mean, I, yeah, she gets killed, but at least David Lynch is back in charge. I'm on board for that. And I was just, you know, I was just happy to see Lynch was back in control after the more than rough patches season two. But yeah. I can honestly tell you, I never would have thought that a movie where I knew everything that was going to happen, that I would still feel this deeply moved like years afterwards. And that's why I think it, no matter what some people might say, that's why it's so important to Twin Peaks. Because, I mean, there's a lot of amazing characters in Twin Peaks. And you can't have Twin Peaks without Laura Palmer. And to make her real is just... And the way Lynch did it was just so incredible. Like, it's a hard watch and definitely a very dark movie, but one of my all-time favorites. I absolutely agree. And um, did you want to say anything about where people can look for you or where to follow you on social media before we left? Oh, sure. Well, if, if anybody's interested in paranormal stuff, I do a lot of paranormal everything. Paranormalprincess.com, Paranormalprincess7 on Instagram. Not on TikTok. Well, actually, yeah, on TikTok too. But someone else took Paranormal Princess and then made gimmicky videos and has millions of followers. So she took my name and I'm kind of sad, but I'm not giving it up. I'm not giving up the good fight. Yeah, thank you. Because I thought this was obviously a very enduring uh, conversation to have just because everything that comes with the movie. But I thought you had a lot of great insight and appreciate it. I'm glad you had me on. Sorry if I like stumble or awkwardly laugh. I'm a much better writer than I am speaker. So oh, don't worry. I, I, I do this thing where I'm always worried about how I sound and I have to go through and edit it. So I, I feel that like, like that sense of dread every step of the way. So it's hard. And I have an awkward laugh. I have like a very like after things that are serious i have like a giggle in my head so sorry to anybody if that's annoying oh but thank you for this erin i hear the voice